Welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. Today, we're talking about healthy vacations, vacations that get your heart rate pumping, that get you out into nature. We're going to start with the classic winter vacation, which is, of course, skiing. To help me discuss that, I have David Goodman on the line. He's the author of of the book, Best Backcountry Skiing in the Northeast. And he's the host of the Vermont Conversation, a public affairs podcast and radio program. He also wrote a really surprising article for the New York Times called Taking Back the Mountains. Hey, David, thank you so much for joining me. Good to be here, Pauline. So there's many ways skiers are taking back the mountains. What are some of them? You talk about the fact that, somewhat down in the article, that, that skiing up until recently was not a very diverse sport in terms of the folks who participated in it. What does that mean exactly? Well, one of the ways that skiers are taking back the mountains is kind of broadening who is skiing. And there has been a concerted effort in recent years. Um, well, there's been an effort for at least a half century with a group uh, known as the National Brotherhood of Skiers, uh, which is a, a be celebrating a golden anniversary at Vail in February. But there are a lot of smaller groups reaching out to skiers of color, to the uh, LGBTQ skiers, to lower the barriers to entry to the sport. Hmm. Um, And so in my article, one of the things I I talk about um, a group out of Seattle called Edge Outdoors, an African-American skier and ski instructor by the name of Annette Diggs, talks about what it means to have people who look like you uh, in a lesson, Hmm. as an instructor, or just going skiing. Uh, Another group uh, out of Vermont called Unlikely Riders uh, focuses on um, people of color and queer community and has community ski and rides. So once again, uh, showing up at a mountain, you're not a unicorn, you know, a one and only. Uh, Sure. You see and talk to and, and, and ride, ski and ride with a lot of people like you. So that's one of the really interesting things happening in skiing right now. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating. As well, there's probably no tourism industry as impacted by climate change as skiing has been. Uh, And not surprisingly, certain ski areas are trying to become more sustainable. Uh, Can you talk about some of the ones that are doing that successfully? Well, absolutely. Skiers are the canaries in the coal mine when it comes to climate change. Um, I am speaking to you from where I live in Vermont. There is no natural snow on the ground in Vermont Mm -hmm. in December. Um, That will change, of course. And hopefully by the time listeners are hearing this, maybe even by then it will change. But it's a sign of the times. So one of the efforts that, uh, you know, all around the ski world, there are efforts to address this. And one that I focused on in my Times article was at Taos. Um, Taos had, uh, you know, is a much beloved and historic ski area, but it was really kind of in decline uh, going into the 2000s. Its heyday was in the 1990s. And a new CEO there, David Norton, decided, well, what if we try sustainability as 
you know, a way to turn this ski area around. And so Taos embarked on uh, a number of initiatives. One was to become a B corporation. Those are essentially socially responsible businesses that are recognized for their environmental and workplace habits. Places like Patagonia and Ben and Jerry's are some of the more famous ones, but there had never been a ski area that was a B Corp, as they're called. Mm. So Taos became one. And then continue has continued to kind of walk the walk, uh, built a new hotel that uh, is heated with geothermal energy, is wow. going to have the first uh, all-electric snow groomer in its fleet, uh, is powered entirely by daytime solar, and also has initiatives with the Native American community to bring more Native American skiers to the ski area. So um, Taos has, uh, skiers have been flocking back there. Turns out sustainability, uh, David Norton, their CEO, told me that uh, the, the day they announced they were becoming a B Corp was their largest sales revenue day in the ski area's ah. history. So turns out people do care. People are yeah. looking to make a difference and looking for their ski areas to be making a difference. Well, and some people are creating new ski areas uh, by glading, I, I think the word is. Can you explain what that means and, <laughs> and what that initiative is? And that also is speaks to sustainable skiing. That's right. Um, and this is one of my uh, favorite stories uh, living in the Northeast. I focused on a group in New Hampshire called the Granite Backcountry Alliance. Now, uh, unlike the West, where open bowls and open hillsides uh, are aplenty, and you can you know essentially ski anywhere it's white, provided you have permission, um, in the East, it's not quite as wide open. So skiers have traditionally here had to create glades, thin out the forest, make ski trails where perhaps there aren't any. Um, the Granite Backcountry Alliance, and, and this has been going on since the 1930s. There are, you know, I have a book that includes many historic ski trails originally cut in the 30s and skied ever since. Hmm. So, but that era kind of ended with the advent of chairlifts in the 1940s. And Granite Backcountry Alliance has brought it back, and they are getting landowner and public land permissions to create these backcountry ski zones, you know, creating glades um, with, you know, kind of sustainable and uh, environmentally sensitive uh, tree cutting that's typically overseen by foresters. And the result is something, in my experience in going over there, it is wildly popular. Um the first thing that happens when you create one of these glade zones is you have a parking crisis because so many people want to oh. come and ski it. Um, they're wow. really wonderful experience. You know, they have everything from what they call lunch laps, you know, places right outside the town of North Conway, for example, in New Hampshire, popular tourist town, where you can just go out for 45 minutes, get a nice backcountry ski run in and go back to work. How so great. I love the way that it is kind of integrated into daily life as opposed to perhaps requiring a, a destination vacation. Yeah. Now, you start the article with what I find the most uh, depressing way of keeping skiing from being a sport or, or a experience that's so overcrowded that people can't enjoy it anymore. And that is a lot of resorts are raising rates. 
uh, it, it, I, you know, I, I can understand the impetus behind it. Part of me thinks, isn't that just an excuse because you want to raise rates? Uh, but what, what, uh, actors are doing that and is it successful? So there are two things happening in the ski world right now, and they're kind of going in opposite directions. One is the advent of multi-mountain passes. So people may be familiar with the Epic Pass from Vail Resorts or the Icon Pass from Altera. And these are passes, you know, and the Epic is good at 41 resorts. Um, The Icon is good at, uh, I forget how many. But um, so the price of ski passes has actually dropped significantly. Uh, Vail really led the charge cutting and then cutting again two years ago, another 20%, such that we're a season pass at a place like Stowe, which I live near, you know, was pushing $2,000 a few years ago. Now you can get it if you buy early in the season for five, six, seven hundred $700, depending on what level of access you want. So the season pass price has gone down dramatically. Huh. However, going in the opposite direction the lowly lift ticket, the thing that you yeah. walk up to the ticket window and buy on the day you want to go skiing. Um, and that the vast majority of skiers will be using, right? I, I would think that it's a small percentage who get the annual passes, or am I wrong? Well, uh, you might be surprised, Pauline, by the numbers. <laughs> right. So Vail Resort's largest ski area operator in the world, Um Right now, only 29% of skiers ski there on a day lift ticket, 71%. I am totally wrong then. Okay. But you may not be wrong at your local ski area that isn't on a multi-mountain pass, but it is important for skiers and listeners and perhaps people who aren't skiers but want to try it to know that at the big ski areas owned by, you know, the Bale Resorts or Altera, you know, they are essentially trying to kill off lift tickets. They want mm. people to commit in advance. I'll give you an example. If you were, say, go to Vail, uh, you know, Vail Mountain in Colorado and buy a day ticket during the holiday week, it will cost you $275. Oh, wow. Jeez. And, and you didn't even bring your golf clubs no. with you. <laughs> however, however, if you have the foresight to buy that ticket in advance, even a day or two, the, uh, the price drops to, I think it's $125. Wow. So you see what's going on here. They'll sell you a lift ticket but don't be foolish enough to buy it on the day of. They want people to commit in advance. Um, so that's something for you know skiers and just people who want to be skiers to really be aware of that you do want to check a few days in advance of going to see what the pre-purchase price is and not be stuck with sticker shock at the right. ticket window. Well, say you know you're going to be taking a week-long ski vacation. Is it more cost-effective to buy a season pass? When does the season pass start paying off? Because as you said earlier, those have gone down drastically in price. So you would think that if you ski enough, uh, that's the cheapest way to go. But when do the savings kick in? Do you know? The savings, depending on the pass and the mountain, but somewhere uh, uh, around three days. 
of skiing is where the season pass kicks in. So you're absolutely right to be asking this question. And, you know, if you're talking about a multi-mountain pass, like an Epic or an Icon, uh, it might not be a bad idea. And remember, it isn't just going to be about that ski week that you take. It will allow you to, you know, go for a day or a weekend somewhere because, as as we like to say in the ski world, the most expensive day of skiing is the first day and the rest is free. So that's the story if you have a pass. So what are some other good ways? So we, we know that if you're going to only go for maybe two days, at least book it well in advance. We know that if you're going to go more than three days, get the pass. What are some other big ways that people can save? Because you know skiing right now it's an expensive sport. It is, but it can be made considerably less expensive with a little smarts. And some of the real values can be found at the smaller ski areas. And there is now a multi-mountain pass for small ski areas called the Indy Pass. It's just a couple hundred dollars, and it gives you two days each at a at, um I forget how many, but a lot of small ski areas perhaps even the local one where you are in Pennsylvania oh. or New Jersey or you know a lot or or southern New England um or the small areas out west so you know we've been speaking until now about the big destination resorts the vales sure. and the stows but uh, there is a lot to be found and particularly if you're a beginner skier you really don't need the big vertical and the amenities and luxuries that a destination resort offers. You may just want to go out with your family. And more than likely, the best value for that is going to be at the smaller ski areas. So, and so lessons would probably be cheaper at the smaller ski areas too, I would think, right? Well, they may be. Or not necessarily. They may be, but you know, you don't want to make blanket statements because you know the big the big players like Vale and Altera, you know, are able to deliver some pretty impressive uh, savings with a little advanced planning. So it behooves you to just check around, um, but don't overlook what's right in under your nose with your local ski area because there's a lot there. And I think, particularly now, you know. You began uh, by noting, Pauline, that that the crowds are a big factor. So these multi-mountain yeah. passes have been driving lots and lots of people to the mountains. Uh, that tends to be less true at the small local ski areas. So you can have a much more relaxed experience. Um, the other thing to note is when we speak of crowds, it is mostly weekends and holidays. And mm. Um, there is, you know, midweek by and large, it's, you have these places, even the big places, even the destination resorts, you have them, I won't say to yourself, but with a lot less, um, you know, traffic. So to the degree you can free up and take advantage of some of the midweek and also the prices are typically lower midweek, Uh there's a lot to be found there. Now, to play devil's advocate, say you decide to travel, we're, you know, we're the travel show, so we're, we're not talking so much about going on your lunch hour. We're, we're talking about planning a vacation around a ski uh, mountain. Say you do decide to go to a 
cheaper mountain in Maine or a smaller mountain out west that isn't a Vale or an Aspen, do you have to worry that they will not have the snowmaking capabilities of the lower mount of the bigger resorts and that that you're going to go you're going to spend money on a hotel on transportation and you're going to get there and not really be able to ski you know snowmaking is pretty much a universal now and actually the places doing the most aggressive job with snowmaking are those that are uh, you know at the lower latitudes even in southern new england um, where really snowmaking is life. There is no skiing without it. So I don't think a, you know, an outright lack of snow. And you know, many people have had the experience of driving by these small ski areas, um, which are have these ribbons of white in an otherwise brown landscape. So <laughs> that is a testament to what they're able to do with snowmaking. Yeah. So I don't think you risk being completely wiped out. Right. I would think that this year, because the dollar is so strong, this year might be the year to go to Canada for skiing or even to parts of Europe, just because, you know, for the first time in several decades, the dollar is at par with the euro. Uh, yes, there could be, I mean, with Canada, you could drive it. Uh, there, there could be higher airfares, but do you think that this could be a good way of, of saving money this year? And and would there be places you would recommend? Well, absolutely. Canada is a great value. And Europe is too. I will say Europe has had some very, speaking of climate change, has really mm. been hit hard with some uh, bad winters in recent years. So um, I'm not sure quite how to play that. Uh, you know, to right. if you can uh, hold off a little bit, uh, and see how it's going in in the winter, um, but then again, you know, in the high Alps and such, those places do still offer skiing. But yes, you know, in Europe, skiing is not a luxury sport the way it can tend to be in some parts of North America. It is less expensive to ski there. I should also point out that these multi mountain passes these days include European resorts, huh. a number of them. So. That same pass that you bought to enable you to ski in Utah, Colorado, or Vermont may also allow you to ski in France and Switzerland. Very interesting. Before I let you go, I got to ask one last budgeting question. For people who don't ski a lot, often the biggest expense is the gear that's involved. Do you have recommendations for how to keep that affordable? Well, once again, the smaller ski areas are really the feeder resorts to the large destination ski areas, and they often have very attractive deals um, around equipment rental, and some of these places even include clothing rental. Um, wow. So you can really be a never ever skier and show up and be <laughs> fully outfitted, particularly, I mean, everywhere that there are lessons. But the small ski areas uh, that feed the large ones often are really well set up for that. 
Well, very good advice. And and I'm jealous that you're in or near Stovermont. My husband's family had a house there for many years, no longer, but it's it's a place that's near and dear to my heart, just the quintessential New England town, I think. Just beyond the skiing, just such a beautiful place with wonderful people. Uh, I couldn't agree more, and I feel lucky to be here. <laughs> well, thank you so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Really appreciate it, David. Thank you. We're concentrating today on vacations that get your heart rate up, that have some athletic component to them, to discuss a very unusual type of athletic vacation that may or may not be that athletic. We have Rebecca Durline on the line. She just wrote a terrific article for Travel and Leisure magazine. It carries the headline, Rail Biking is a New Adventurous Way to Experience Train Travel. Hey, Rebecca, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Nice to talk to you. So, I, what is rail biking? It's not really train travel, right? It is a form of train travel, only using your own two feet to make it happen. It's actually really cool. I had never heard of it before, before I literally stumbled upon it crossing the train tracks on the Hood River Railroad in Hood River, Oregon. These were bright red bikes that sit wide. Imagine straddling, you know, you're riding the rail, so it has to be a wide bike. Usually uh-huh. tandem side by side. Some of them are quads and they carry four people and they have huh. metal wheels and the, and you pedal it and you pedal along the rails of an old railroad track. Okay. I'm glad you said old railroad track <laughs> because I just had the vision in my head of tourists just getting squashed yeah. by Amtrak. Yeah. No, this would, is not, you're not sharing the tracks. Right. When we decided to do it, we made sure we asked that question in advance. And the man who had bought the railroad uses it part-time for train travel, you know, like for huh. a Christmas train, for instance. But right. obviously the schedules are set and there are designated times for rail biking. So wow. it's, so you did this in, in Oregon yes. and you're on an old rail bed, I guess it's called. You're on the tracks on this kind of bike-like machine that allows you to bike. What do you see? And, and is it strenuous? It is not strenuous, which is a huge selling point, I think, for travelers <laughs> in that Virtually anyone can do it. So to give you some idea, we were we got started. It really wasn't even difficult to get started. And then at a very light, casual pedal, we were going maybe about 12 mile, miles per hour um, because there was a speedometer there on it. And the beauty of it is that if you tire of pedaling or – as in this case, there is a slight grade, um, huh, upward uh-huh. grade. If you if you get tired of that, you can just switch on the motor assist and you can stop pedaling and the motor will just carry you. Oh, wow. Okay. So you Interesting. have that option. And what do you see? Oh, it's beautiful. And what I loved about it is it takes you somewhere you could not possibly see otherwise because you're seeing huh. it from train tracks. 
Yeah. So it takes you, in this case, we went over a bridge that, you know, just beautiful scenery um, down into forested areas. We pedaled through vineyards and orchards. We came out at the base of Mount Hood and just had this beautiful view of Mount Hood. So Mm. it, it really is a way to connect with nature Right. And be active in doing it. Oh, it sounds great. And did you have a guide with you uh, telling you, you know, what you were seeing and and helping you if anything went wrong? Or or is this something that people can do uh, solo? No, I don't think that you can do it solo. Um, We had a guide. Typically, if you have a large group, you have a guide in the front and a guide in the back. So somebody always has eyes if anything is needed. And the guides are also the people that when you get as far as you're going, they're going to maneuver the bikes to turn them around on the tracks to head back home. I see. Oh, I see. So it's not a, so it's a one way trip and then you go back the same way. Exactly. You know, I, I always find when I'm biking places, when I go turn around and go back, somehow it looks different. I did. Was it the same on this rail bike? It was. And, and for instance, we uh, for a lot of it, we were traveling along a river. And so it was on my right side. It was on my side, the driver's, well, the passenger side, technically. And then coming back, it was on my husband's side. So it was nice that we could both get the entire 360 view during the course of the biking. And that brings me to an enormous benefit of rail biking, which is your arms are free. Ah. You're sitting in these seats and it's sort of recumbent bike style, although not quite that extreme. And your hands are completely free. So you can be taking pictures and videos, swiveling back and forth, all while you're comfortably biking. Oh, it sounds great. It sounds idyllic. And it's not just... In Oregon, where you can do this, there are many, in your article for travel and leisure, you go through the other places and some of them, I, what I loved about it was some of them really reflect the place. So you're doing this activity, but you're doing it like in Las Vegas, you do it at night and it's lit up. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Which just cracks me up. They're embracing their, um, their image and they actually light up the rail bikes and, go out for a nighttime um, tour. And then there are other places, you know, I've stumbled upon places on both coasts and kind of everywhere in between, although this is relatively new activity in the U.S. So you can see it picking up steam. You can see places opening up. Um, But for instance, I was intrigued by the one that, actually allows you to bring a dog and they have little trailers where you can put your dog in the trailer and bike and pull your dog. I love that. I love that. Where was that one? What, what state was that in? Do you that remember? Was, um, let me I guess that was Pudding Creek Rail Bikes in Fort Bragg, California. 
Yes, where you can. Yeah. Thank you for refreshing my memory. That's, <laughs> That's all right. And then I really liked the. And, one. Would, and also, when you're doing it in Fort Bragg, not only do you have your dogs, but you're biking next to next to magnificent redwood trees. Yes, and and that's cool because the the places that I tried to include on my list each have something that distinguishes them, and each one of these is very different. Yes, you're rail biking across beautiful terrain, but for instance, there's one called Tracks and Yaks in Maryland where um, they their signature trip is a downhill rail bike tour followed by a four-mile float on the Potomac in mm. a kayak or a tube. So some of these will carry kayaks or tubes and they add on that sort of adventure. So yes. it, the, the beauty is that you're rail biking out to a location and that location is the perfect place to get out and stretch your legs and give them an opportunity to turn the bikes around. So right. some of them will have a hike at that point or a picnic huh. at that point. Um, so I guess because they have different activities involved, there must be different prices, right? Or do they all cost roughly the same amount of money? They're, you know? they're kind of all over the place for the reason that you just mentioned. So the, hmm. the one that I took was 199 per rail bike. So you could feasibly go solo. Or right. you can have a partner with it with you. They only had the side by sides. They did not have a quad, so that was one ninety nine. But then your price is going to vary no matter where you go based on the whatever extra add ons you might um, mm, include sure. or how long you're out. I was out for about three hours total. For that okay, one ninety nine, so thirty dollars per person per hour. That's not as bad when you think about it that way. Well, and for me, it was a great. It was a beautiful morning out in nature. By the time we biked, stopped, got out, went into the fruit company, took pictures of Mount Hood, got back in, and rode back. It was a full morning of just beauty. And light exercise and definitely worth it. Okay. Well, you make it sound wonderful in the article. Thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. You're so welcome. Glad to share this with others. Yeah. Well, it's definitely worth sharing. And to those of you who are listening, thank you as always for listening. Uh, we'll be back next week. And let me say, I know a lot of people are traveling at this time of year. If that is you, may I wish you a hearty, Bon voyage.